Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. It's my great honor today to welcome a wonderful guest, Heather White. Uh, She has uh, quite a few accomplishments behind or by her name. She's a real change maker. She's an environmental lawyer, a writer, a consultant, an author, a motivational speaker, a nonprofit executive, and a former Senate staffer. She has more than 20 years of experience in nonprofit management and policy advocacy. She's the former president of Yellowstone Forever, the nonprofit partner to Yellowstone National Park. She was the executive director of EWG, which is a nonprofit group. The initials stand for Environmental Working Group. She was the director of education advocacy at the National Wildlife Foundation, or Federation, I believe it is. Heather also served as counsel on energy and environment to a United States Senator, Russell Feingold of Wisconsin, who is a Democrat. In addition, Heather was an associate at Bass, Perry, and Sims, that's a law firm, and was the recount attorney and presidential uh, campaign staffer for Al Gore in 2000. I'll ask her about the recount attorney. I think I figured out what it means. <laughs> I'll ask her in a minute. Um, Heather has also been one of the top 100 women in wellness, uh, which she was um, rated on uh, by Ma- Mind Body Green. She was a recipient of the Women in Sustainability Leadership Award. She serves on the board of several nonprofit organizations and has testified before Congress. She's also appeared on Good Morning America, PBS, NBC News, CBS News, and MSNBC. She's been cited in national outlets such as the Washington Post, the New York Times, Mind Body Green, the Wall Street Journal, Shondaland, Healthline, and The Guardian on a wide range of climate and environmental policy issues. Heather is optimistic about the future and determined to create intergenerational partnerships to create a healthier, greener, and more equitable world. Her favorite number one green thing is hiking with her family and friends in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem near her home in Bozeman, Montana. So I'll go back to that uh, question, Heather. Uh, Was I right about that? (laughs) You were absolutely right about that. Thank you so much, Dr. Messina, for having me here. It's a thrill uh, to be on the podcast. And I was, in fact, a recount attorney in 2000 in Florida after my campaign experience there. And I'm also excited to to share with you that I've started my own nonprofit called OneGreenThing.org which is focused on the intersection between climate action and mental health. Oh, great. That's terrific. 
Well, as a psychologist, I would definitely uh, want to find out more about that. I'm definitely interested in that because um, the environment is affecting the mental health of patients. I see that. I see that daily. So um, let's get started. I have a lot of questions about your book, which actually I think is a fantastic book. Thank You're you. Obviously, uh, you've been working in the environment for many years. What led you to write a book now? That's such a great question, Karen. I have been covering environmental issues as an environmental lawyer, as an activist, as a policy person, as a campaign staffer, as you just kind of read all those bullets. But it was a conversation with my teenagers that brought me to this intersection between mental health and climate and inspired me to write my book, which is uh, One Green Thing, Discover Your Hidden Power to Help Save the Planet. We, um, this was actually in 2019, my younger, excuse me, my older daughter, but my younger daughter was present. My older daughter asked permission to participate in the Greta Thunberg inspired climate strike. And I said, of course you can go. Um, but without even thinking, I checked the weather report and I saw that it was supposed to thunderstorm and she was carrying, going to carry a heavy backpack and a trumpet and my mom energy kicked in. And I said, you know what, why don't I pick you up and I'll just drive you to the protest site so you don't get rained on. I mean, I'm just so embarrassed that this was my reaction. And my teenager, let's just say that did not go over very well. She was like, wait, what? You're going to pick me up in a car, like a fossil fuel driven, you know, uh, energy car. And you're going to pick me up from a walkout at school and drive me when I'm supposed to be protesting and you're worried about me getting rained on. What about my future? And then she got very upset and said, mom, you know, where is, where's Gen X? Where are the baby boomers? I'm so sick and tired of all this praise for Gen Z young activists. We can't save, we're running out of time. You can't wait for us to save the planet. We need your help and we feel all alone. And that was such a shock to me because this is my career. This is what I've dedicated my life to, Karen. And in my house to have my kids ask me what I was doing, I realized there was a disconnect between my work life and my family dinner conversations. And I realized that if my kids felt alone in climate action, I could only think about what was it like around other dinner tables. So that inspired me to dive in. Well, that's a very inspirational story. Having had teenagers and having conversations uh, that are, the content isn't the same, but the gist is, I totally understand. So when the mom thing kicks in, you don't <laughs> want your child to get wet. But obviously for her, there was something that would, was much more important. And I'm glad she um, had the wherewithal to let you know, which uh, I suspect we're just reading you briefly that that wasn't a problem for her. <laughs> <laughs> it was definitely not a problem for her, but it it sent me on a journey where I realized, you know, I joined her at the march. Uh, so did my husband and my younger daughter too. And I realized that I'd been so focused on policy and systemic solutions, which of course we need global policy and market solutions. But I realized that a lot of people, when environmentalists like me focus on the Inflation Reduction Act, on cap and trade, on microgrid technology, on um, how can we electrify everything with, with wind and solar, how do we get rid of our induction ovens? When we start the conversation there, a lot of people think they don't matter if they don't have a PhD in sustainability. And I realized I needed to not only consider the mental health impacts of the climate crisis on young people, but also create a way for more people to start to see themselves in the movement, because in my view, this is the biggest challenge of our lifetimes. And we all, all of us have a very important role to play and everyone is welcome and everyone is needed in this movement. I think that that's, uh, it's vitally important. And I, I also believe it's important to hear the, the voices of teenagers at times that, that can be harsh, but, um, can be very enlightening and informative. So hats off to your daughter. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I, I want to say that I really enjoyed reading your book. Um, not because you're a guest on my podcast, but because there is something about it. I haven't quite put my finger on it yet, but 
it led me to want to actually make a commitment. And not that I make commitments all the time, but I actually wanted to sit down and write down things that I wanted to do. And there are other good books that don't necessarily do that. Do you have any thoughts about that? Uh, maybe you don't know why I had this reaction, but if you've heard it from other people. Um, I, ha I actually have heard that from other people. And it's so interesting that you bring that up because I wanted to write a self-help book for the environment. I feel like this issue is so overwhelming at times, even for people like me who've been doing it for 25 years. It, uh, and, and the news headlines are so scary. We're, we're seeing, you know, without a doubt, the impacts of climate crisis right now. This may be one of the coolest summers in our lifetimes, you know, that we're experiencing right now, you know, even with all the tremendous heat waves. So I wanted people to see how they could contribute to understand that this is not about perfection, it's not about progress, and also not to get wrapped up in this idea of a carbon footprint, because I know that that there, a lot of people are aware of this, but some people, it is new information. The idea of an individual carbon footprint was actually a PR gimmick by the oil and gas companies. The idea was, let's try to shift this issue to the individual so they won't think about the billions of tax dollar subsidies we've received <laughs> for oil and gas, you know, and how our fossil fuels are creating this mess. So the idea was to try to shift it to, to the individual. So it's not so much about your carbon calories, but individual action is important to ease anxiety, to exercise agency in the way that you can, and you, me, all of us, everyone listening to this podcast, everyone picking up the book, everyone just walking through life, we're all cultural change agents. And we have to have the culture change for the big policy solutions to work. Because without that, it's not going to, we saw that with COVID, you know, even if there were health protective standards, and obviously there was a lot of debate about that, but just because we had the policy didn't mean people complied. So just because we have opportunities and tax rebates now for, with the Inflation Reduction Act for electric cars and heat pumps and induction ovens, it doesn't mean people are going to take advantage of them if we don't have that cultural shift. And so when you're saying this idea of wanting to write things down, that makes me so excited and happy. <laughs> Thank you so much, Karen. I'm thrilled about that because I do have opportunities within the book to write to journal, yeah. to think about your plan, to think about things, not just not just the tips, because one of the things I think is a challenge for us as communicating in the, in the climate space is a lot of times we talk about the what, the do this, not that. And we forget, to we forget about the essential question, which Karen, for you as a psychologist, this is the question that you start with, with all of your patients is who are you? You know, who are you? And that's where we need to start the conversation with climate action. Who are you? What do you value? What are you good at? And, and I think this is a really important frame. What do you want your legacy to be? How do you want to be remembered? And if we can start thinking about our personal legacies, how we want to be remembered, we can start viewing climate action in a frame that's inspiring and aligned uh, with who we want to be and how we want to show up for our future loved ones. Yeah. Well, I have another another thing to add to what you just said, but I'll save it because I want to ask you about your optimistic outlook. So I, I mentioned to you earlier that I participated or organized a conference two years ago for therapists on the catastrophic things that could happen in the future and how to help patients with that. And I learned about... Um, people who are not optimistic, they're concerned about the environment, the deep adaptationist, um, and they think it's too late to save the planet. And um, if my assumption about you is correct and you're quite different than that, or you have a different outlook, um, and I think I'm right about that. Well, you obviously right. I'm right about part of it. Could you speak to that? Uh, your viewpoint versus those who think uh, it's too late. Yes, I understand why there are people who think it's too late. The we've been sounding this alarm, you know, for thirty years, uh, longer than that, fifty years uh, potentially, and we haven't seen the swift action that we need. And the window is closing. The win window of time is closing. The headlines, as we just talked about, are very scary. Whether it's wildfires in Europe drought in the continent of Africa, 
whether it's you know flooding that we've seen around the world, these extreme weather events are happening at a much stronger and fiercer pace. And we're not seeing necessarily the political solutions that we need, uh, are, they aren't commiserate with the threat that we have. So I get that, um, but I think it's a cop-out because the reality is, and even the deep adaptationists know, we have the technology. This is not a tech problem. We know we need to electrify as much as possible and it needs to be clean energy. We know that we need to limit deforestation as much as we can. There's a great organization called Project Drawdown that has, you know, that indexes the top 100 climate solutions. They all exist now. They don't require um, huge inventions, but what they do require and what's missing is the political will. And we have seen throughout our own individual lifetimes, huge changes in society and how we connect because of political will whether it be civil rights, and obviously we still have huge progress that we need to make in civil rights, whether it be the World War II effort that we saw here in the United States to mobilize in four years, you know, uh, on a huge, huge scale, whether it be um, big changes that we've witnessed on things like the Montreal Protocol. I know that sounds like a small example, but it's actually a huge example. We had a uh, um, you know, all the countries in the world sign a treaty to eliminate chlorofluorocarbons and close the ozone layer. We did that in 1987. And actually, we closed the ozone layer. We did big things. We survived the Cold War. I'm not saying that, you know, we certainly haven't put an end to war. We know that there's incredible risk and change still with the nuclear arsenal that's still there. But when I was growing up, it wasn't climate that I was that worried about. It was, you know, doing drills and hiding under my desk because the Russians may bomb us. So we we have done big things before. And what happened with the nuclear freeze movement was people around the world saying, stop, you've got to stop. And so one of the things that I think we're missing in so much of your work, um, Karen, deals with communication and the power of communication. One of the things we forget to do as grownups is to share with young people the changes that we've witnessed. And it is not a dismissive, you know, we had it so bad, you have no idea. But it is important for young women to know in 1978 is when the Pregnancy Discrimination Act was passed. So you can't, you know, you can't fire a woman because she's pregnant. That's not something that kids necessarily know or learn. And that that was because of big political movements. So what I say to the doomers or the deep adaptationists or whatever they'd like to call themselves is you're right about the science. You're right about the, the seriousness. Uh, you're right about the need of adapting. But what we need to do, in my view, is bring as many people in as possible and get them to act and Karen, I think this is a really big point. I know I've been going on for a while, but I think it's a really big point. The other thing we need to do is not only enlist as many people as possible, help them see themselves in the movement, let them know it's possible, let them know it's political. We also have to talk about what if we get it right? We forget to ask this question. What could Detroit look like in 2050 if we have green design everywhere? What could Phoenix look like in 2050 with rooftop gardens? And what if we had trains, bullet trains, like we see in Japan that were fueled by clean energy? What if we had um, equity at the center of our solutions, but had solar panels on every shopping mall you know, in America or whatever structure that we're using in 2050? We forget to to have that creative conversation about the opportunity that the crisis brings. Now, I don't want to sound like I'm Pollyanna because when I talk about the opportunity, I, I see the pain and suffering, right? And the people who contribute the least amount of carbon pollution are suffering the most, but we do need to start talking about what if we get it right? What could it look like? What could we build toward? You know, that's so interesting because so many people talk about the future, I'll just throw out 2045, what is it going to look like if we don't do anything? And yes, we can all come up with, do research and come up with what it's likely to look like if we don't do anything or we don't do enough. But to look, to flip it over and to say, look what it could look like if we did what we need to do, is a whole different scenario. So my next question was, about young people and how worried they are and what your message is to them. I think I might know that answer. To yes. Tell about the possibilities of what could happen. 
we have to talk about the possibilities, but the first, and this is what I've learned from, uh, fortunately, the mental health professionals that I've interviewed as part of the book and that are part of my life, is the importance of, of, of first asking young people how they feel. It's one of the biggest takeaways from my book. I've had a lot of people say to me, well, Heather, you know, of course, your kids have climate anxiety because they're your kids. <laughs> you know? But to a person, when I ask them, just at dinner or whenever you get a moment, just ask them how they feel to a person. It's been a life-changing conversation because the kids are like, oh, well, you know, we have seven years. And if we don't make these big changes by 2030, you know, I don't even think I want to have kids. I don't even know if like a master's degree is worth it. And oh, by the way, the people, you know, who are contributing the least are carbon pollution or suffering the most. That includes black, indigenous, people of color and poor communities are hurting and suffering. And so I think they're surprised about the anxiety and the pain and the um, cynicism and the anger that a lot of these young people feel. So it's important to have that conversation, to bear witness to it, to let these young people know they're not alone, and then tell them that you will work together with them in partnership. But as far as like, you know, the, the issue, which a lot of the research that you've been part of that is so important, there was a survey uh, in 2021 of 10,000 young people, a global survey, ages 16 through 25, global. 47% said climate anxiety interfered with their daily life. And one out of four did not want to have children of their own because of the climate crisis. It wasn't a personal decision. It was literally because they were afraid that the li life wouldn't be habitable to have a baby and they didn't want to bring a baby into the world. So we have to acknowledge the pain. So I just want to make sure that you know, uh, as a professional mental health uh, person, that that my strategy isn't immediately just say, "Oh, it'll be fine." Let's let's brainstorm. You know? So we have to create the space uh, to acknowledge that it's serious and the window of opportunity is closing. But the reason that in my book I talk about visualizing 2030, visualizing 2050, and I have a visualization exercise, and the reason I think it's so important is I had a great talk with a bunch of fifth graders recently. And I can tell you, Karen, I am not smarter than a fifth grader. <laughs> you know, I learned that after talking to them. They are so smart and engaged. And we were talking about the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And these goals are things like end poverty by 2030, gender equity by 2030, clean water for all by 2030, clean energy accessible by all by 2030. And these 10, 11-year-olds you know, knew that we're not going to make it. Right. They knew that they were aspirational, but I was trying to talk to them about, well, what if we do? What does it look like? What does it feel like? What could it be like? And they started brainstorming. And then a little girl raised her hand and she said, you know, is there a virtual reality experience where I could walk into a world where all of these goals are met? And I could see it and feel it. And I said, no, but that is a fantastic idea. But I think that we have to start talking about it, especially because we all do know that we have the technology. Yeah. Um, if we have this vision of what we're building towards, it's not just what we're fighting from, you know, fighting, but what are we building toward? It can make a clearer, the, the sacrifices we might have to make become a clearer picture in reality. This is so funny. I was going to bring up that study that you mentioned, the global study. I must have read a part of it because I, I read about children in the, or young people, some of them were children, in the UK who answered the questionnaire. And I knew that the number was very high of, well, it was significant, I thought, of, of, of kids who didn't want to have children because they didn't want to bring them into the world that they feel could be pretty, uh, pretty doom and gloom type place. But if Dr. They... Messina, yeah, you were right about that. There was a study, an inventory of um, UK child psychologists and psychiatrists, and 52% had clients that were expressing climate anxiety and also did not want to have kids. And so this was a different survey um, oh, of 10,000 yeah. people, but you're right. Like what, to your point about having this conference two years ago, it's building more and more people. And, and the reality is more and more people are having these experiences with extreme weather. They know someone in Germany who lost their house. They know someone in California, you know, who lost their house. One was in flooding, one was for wildfires. They're, they know someone, an elderly person that doesn't have access to air conditioning in Seattle and extreme heat. You know, they're starting to, they see unhoused people living under, um, 
you know, overpasses in, in uh, Arizona and are worried. So, so more and more people are starting to connect the dots and, and feel, you know, the pain. So on the, on the um, topic or with getting to know something in mind, um, one thing that you talk about is getting to know laws about the environment. Um, and I thought, I thought it was important to bring this up. Can you explain the relationship between the laws you talk about, law of the law of simplicity and consistency, the law of identity and the law of amplification? And I guess that's related to your service super assessment. Oh, thank you so much, Karen. Yeah, that is the laws of change. So one of the things I wanted to do in the book was make sure that people had context for how they could show up in the climate movement. And I didn't want to immediately start with like, okay, hi, I'm Heather. Who are you? <laughs> you know, even though we do need to start the conversation with who are you, it was more of let's understand how change happens. And so um, the first when I talk about the law of simplicity is if, you know, I talk about how habits help create culture change, but the more simple and consistent you can make your habit, the more likely you are to keep it. And so I talk about this idea of a one green thing is not about reducing your carbon calories necessarily, your carbon footprint, but as a driver for culture change. And I call it a daily practice of sustainability is what your one green thing is. And it's almost like yoga or running or meditation or journaling. If you start viewing the practice of one green thing as you're doing the best you can that day, it can build on itself. So simplicity and consistency. Then there's the law of identity. And that is that comes from James Clear, Atomic Habits, which is just a fantastic book. He doesn't call it the law of identity. I do. But his research shows that, and research that he cites too, shows that if you think of yourself as a type of person who does X behavior, you're more likely to keep it up. So if I want to swim three times a week and say, I swim three times a week, I'm not as likely to keep up that behavior than if I said, hi, Karen, I am Heather and I'm a swimmer. And so that identity piece is really important. And that's one of the things that motivated me to create the service superpower assessment. And the third is the law of amplification. So we have the law of simplicity and consistency, the law of identity, and then the law of amplification. And we all know, because we experience social media, that bad news travels fast. But we forget sometimes that joy is contagious. Positive emotions are contagious. And I cite to like, you know, peer-reviewed scientific literature that shows that, that joy is contagious. And so the more that we take action, the more we can share our joy, the more we can inspire other people to take action and see themselves as part of the movement. And then the final step, as you kind of embrace these different laws and think about, okay, this is why, this is why daily practice can be important. I ask you to take what's called a service superpower assessment. It's on my website, onegreenthing.org. And the idea is that it's kind of like a Myers-Briggs or Enneagram or strength finders. But the question is, who are you in service to others? What are your strengths in service. And there's seven different profiles. And the idea is you don't have to be everything to all people. Like one of my friends is like, I want to be an adventurer, Heather. I like, I want to rappel and I want to kayak, but that's not me. But when she found out that there's a role of a philanthropist, which is bringing other people to events, to lectures, to support, to give money, to volunteer to different causes, she was like, ah, that is how I can show up even though I'm not going to be the person that's going to take a bunch of kids camping for seven days. <laughs> you know, we all have different roles we can play. Sure. And we all don't have to do them all. That's a very good point. <laughs> you have a 21-day Kickstarter plan. That's very important. I think it's an important part of your approach. Uh, could you explain that to our listeners? Yeah. So this is kind of the whole concept of this self-help book for climate action, right? It's it's a an inward journey that you take is who are you? What are your strengths in the service? What of the seven service superpower profiles are you? You know, what archetype are you? Uh, and then based on your archetype, like for example, if you're the beacon, which is really focused on social justice, you're the person like my daughter who's happy to go to the, the protest and should, you know would be behind the bullhorn having no problem, then you have a 21-day plan. 
uh, based on what your skills are and also based on different principles of change um, for one green thing. And so you can just down, you, you can just flip up. I also on the website have a seven day plan, but in the book, there's a 21 day plan for you to take action every day. And the idea is that after 21 days, you can help build a habit. But of course, I realized as I was writing the book, apparently it's more like 180 days, <laughs> depending on who you are to build that habit. But the idea is that you can get started right away. And again, I am not saying if Heather White skips the straw, the climate crisis is solved. But what I am saying is by skipping the straw, by going for a hike, by having an important conversation, by seeing a climate documentary, by calling your member of Congress, that this daily practice is a very powerful tool for cultural change. And if everyone takes action every day, the math really will make a difference. Yeah, as a psychoanalyst, the focus in training and in practice is not on habit building. However, I found it to be extremely useful to help people with that because if they can't get out of a rut of, of, of any type, they can't get out of a rut and you can understand it and you can understand the roots of it. And I help them with that as well. Maybe their mother, their father, somebody did X, but you also need to be able to get up and move forward. And so I, I think a combination is, I, I think a combination of understanding and taking action is important. And I, I just talked to somebody today who is saying, that he just never learned. Nobody, he hadn't, didn't have models for this that he wanted to do and he just never learned it. And so we talked about this idea of habits and, and starting and then keeping it up. And I, I told him about somebody else who had told me who never really followed through on anything, that he just got a notification from Duolingo that he, he'd reached 180 lessons. And he was so thrilled. And this person was like, well, I guess if that person could do it, I could do it. So there's no magic involved, but there is something really important about building on doing something and doing, doing it again and doing it again. You know what? I think that is so powerful when you talk about how people weren't necessarily taught this. It's, it is a learned behavior and that also it's not magic. And I think that's the thing about climate action. And Aaron Brockovich, who's a dear friend, friend, um, the amazing activist who the you know movie is based on, based on, and, is, and continues to do phenomenal work. Aaron Brockovich talks about how Superman isn't coming. Like no one's going to sweep in and save us from the climate crisis or whatever personal challenge you're dealing with. You know, you are the hero that the Earth needs right now, just like you are the hero that has to ultimately seek the mental health professional support that you need and do the things in order to, to get well um, and, and make that commitment to yourself. And so one of the things I try to do, in addition to thinking about the habits, is this idea of you can also inventory, I have a joy tracker in the book, and you can ask yourself what one green thing gives you joy. So you may find that a walk in nature is the most important thing that you're doing to center yourself and be focused on the environment. You may find, like me, calling the congressional switchboard and leaving a message for your congressional member is so much fun and you love it. My, I only have one member of the Montana delegation who's aligned with my environmental beliefs, but I love sending messages to everyone else because <laughs> their job is to listen to me, Karen, even though I know they don't agree with me. And that brings me joy, but you can find ways that climate action can bring joy while we are also hoping for the swift, not just hoping we're taking action for these swift solutions to take, take hold. On that note, and going back to uh, your mention of Erin Brockovich, I liked one thing that she said in the forward to your book. I mean, I like the forward in general, but if I may, I'm going to read a couple of sentences we all have a role in climate action. One green thing will help you find how you can apply your talents to service your family, community, and the climate movement. With determination and what I call stick we can do it. We have the power. The planet needs you. We all do. I think that's what you're saying. And I just thought that was lovely that she said it as well. 
Oh, absolutely. The planet, yeah, the planet needs us. And, you know, I've also heard people say, well, the planet's going to be fine. It's really humanity that we're worried about, but it's both, right? Yeah. I mean, there's just, when we think about the impacts on wildlife, uh, it's it's really, people are looking, you know, 100 degrees in Key West right now in the oceans, the impact on marine life, that's just temperatures. We're not even talking plastic pollution. All of these these issues, as you start to learn more and more about them, they're so complicated. You pull back the threads. It's incredibly depressing, but the solutions are there. I think that's the most important thing that readers need to know is that the solutions are there and we need to, as a society, and that starts with us as individuals to say, these are our values, sustainability, regenerate, regeneration, like a regenerative future. It's critically important to us and we're going to vote for it. We're going to support causes like this and we're going to demand it ultimately. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And we'll get, we, I, that's why I'm hopeful is that I know like I just say to myself, you know, we we put people in space. <laughs> we, we have this technology. We can politically create something really beautiful that our future loved ones can thank us for. But we are at a critical time. I just, you know, I, I'm not Pollyanna. I don't have my rose colored glasses on. We don't have a whole lot of time to make these big changes. Yeah, I just like to, to say that uh, you you had no way of knowing this, but I grew up in the Florida Keys. So when I heard the story about the coral, it was really heart-wrenching because when I lived there, and I, I lived there as a child, which was a long time ago, it was so beautiful. And uh, I'm sure there was damage then, but it wasn't so visible. So that that's a heart-wrenching story for it's, me. It's heart-wrenching. It is a, is a, that is a, a beautiful way to describe it. And I think that's when we talk about climate anxiety, eco-anxiety, is we have to recognize that. You know, kids, kids see this. You know, we experience this loss. There is a tremendous amount of concern and pain involved with facing this crisis head on. And we have to recognize those emotions as much as we want to move into action. But you can't just immediately go into action. You've got to be able to process this, which is why I'm so thrilled that, you know, therapists like you exist that are, you know, obviously very aware of these issues, but committed to helping people and guiding them through this loss because, it's very tough. And I will say one of the things with young people is we tend to forget that social media is an important player in eco-anxiety. We assume a lot, or at least I know I did, I assume that that it was more of, you know, Karen got invited to this really cool party and look how cute she looks, but Heather didn't get invited. I kind of had focused on the cyberbullying, which is a significant issue, and peer pressure. I didn't really understand that these young people are seeing other young people report on climate crises in their backyard. So kids in Bozeman, Montana can see a kid in Bangalore, India, talking about a heat wave. They can see a kid in Santa Barbara filming their house burning down. You know, they can see a kid in Italy uh, you know, fleeing a fire, just like they can see a kid in Germany with the the floods or someone in Kenya with the drought. Like they, they are seeing firsthand the pain and suffering of the climate crisis, which is why we've got to get all of our designers, we've got to get all of our artists, our architects who are doing innovative green design. We've got to get those pictures, those images out there so they can see these opportunities that are there. Yeah. Well, that's, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought of that with young people either at the internet. Uh, uh, yeah. 
Jamedia. So that's very insightful. Speaking of insightful, uh, tell our listeners about the seven service superpower profiles that oh, you've that mentioned briefly. That's a great question. Thank you, Dr. Messina. Yeah. Um, so again, I wanted people to be able to see themselves in climate action because a lot of times I have friends who are like, okay, well, I care. Clearly I care. And I bought an electric car. Okay, is that enough? You know, and then I'm worried about rare earth minerals. You know, what have I done? They start researching that and then they go down a rabbit hole and uh, get paralyzed again. So I thought it was important to kind of see yourself and what your strengths are and understand that, again, it's about progress, not perfection. So there's seven different archetypes. The first is the adventurer, which embraces the physicality of the outdoors. Uh, they are focused on um, getting people outside their comfort zones and are you know, love these kind of adventures in nature. The second is the beacon. And the beacon, which I mentioned a little bit earlier, is the person who's focused on social justice. They speak truth to power. They are happy to be at the podium or have their bullhorn you know, raging. That's my daughter, my older daughter, for sure. The influencer is the person who's all about people, 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 and they love connecting people together. And that's one of their ways of showing up in service. Then there's the philanthropist, which is, it's a big fancy name, the philanthropist, but it's the giver, the person who loves to give their time, give their resources, they volunteer, and they connect people that way. Then there's the sage, which is spiritually connected to nature. And the sage can, because of their focus on nature and spirituality, can kind of break through a lot of the political divisiveness we have and start talking about those core values that we have, the, the sage. Uh, then there's the spark, which is really interesting because I've had a lot of people tell me that they were grateful for this, um, this archetype. The spark is kind of a cheerleader, the plus one. The spark may not consider themselves an environmentalist per se, but you know, if if Karen, if you're headed to the local land trust for a reception, the friend that comes along is a spark. If someone wants to go see a new documentary or go on a hike with you, or okay, sure, you know, there's a lobby day, I'll go. I've never lobbied before. That's the spark, and that's an important role. And then finally, yeah. there's the wonk, and the wonk is all about science and data. And they can take these complex issues and translate them, them in ways people can understand. And a lot of environmentalists are wonks, which is great. But when it comes to communication, we need to have all of those seven archetypes really in play. This is a little bit tough, this next part, because you have examples of people in these categories. And so I chose one in each category. Um, I wish you could mention them all because they all have, have accomplished great things. So I have uh, picked out people for you to talk a little bit about, but if you want to add somebody else, that's, that's okay. Uh, and I was really struck by all of them. Uh, in the adventure category, you talk about uh, Crystal Ambrose. Could you say a little bit about her? Sure. And that's the first part of the book is all about the identity. So when you find out what your service superpower profile is, I wanted you to have real life people who are like you that you could kind of, you know, get inspired by. So Crystal is based in the Bahamas. She started the Bahamas plastic movement. She is a Goldman prize winner. Um, she started focusing on plastic pollution um, in her community. She was really interested in marine science and marine biology and started organizing kids to do beach cleanups and then realized the global issue with plastic pollution and started a nonprofit and has been recognized internationally. So she's just an incredibly insightful, dynamic young person who is doing all she can to create a better future outdoors, <laughs> underwater. <laughs> Yeah, that's a great example of one person just deciding they're going to do something and then having this mushroom type effect. So, yeah, great example. How about the beacon? Robin O'Brien? Oh, Robin O'Brien is great. So, so Beacon is a great example. Again, they're they're the ones who are not afraid to be alone and speak truth to power. So Robin says she's a very unlikely activist. She has an M MBA and was a financial analyst for food companies for Fortune 500 companies. And she had four kids. And when her younger daughter had an egg allergy, she her whole life changed because it was a life-threatening allergy, but she also, Robin, started using her skills as someone who was on a desk, you know, and a financial analyst and trader 
um, she started using those skills to start looking at our food system and what had been done to it and um, really became a leader in organic food and regenerative agriculture and started um, down this path of trying to get more kids to eat healthy food for people to understand the different chemicals and processed food. And then also helping people understand the power of soil as a carbon solution and created a company that tries to help farmers who are conventional farmers make the shift to less chemically intensive agriculture. And she provides financing for them to do that. So it's a neat and interesting way to show up in climate. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, the, the soil, um, what you could do with the soil, that that really, <laughs> that struck a chord. I was very interested in that. Um, let's see. The influencer of Robert Hill Emmons. Robin Hill Emmons is an incredible influencer. So this is a really interesting story of Robin. You can see that she's all about people, people, people when you hear this. So Robin was an analyst at Bank of America or a mortgage broker. She Anyway, she was an executive at Bank of America, but she had a real um, challenging family situation that she had kind of kept secret, but had to deal with. And that is that her brother had been challenged with um, drug addiction and homelessness. And she realized it was time for her to take care of him. So she became his guardian. And when she put him in a a mental health care facility, he immediately gained 35 pounds. And she started to realize it wasn't his medicines. It was the food that he was being given at the facility. It was highly processed, mostly canned, lots of sugar, lots of fat, a lot of fast food. And she decided to rip up her suburban garden, excuse me, her suburban yard and plant a garden, told her friends and family, hey, this is what I'm doing. And she created a supply of fresh fruits and vegetables for the mental health care facility. And then from there, created a very thriving nonprofit that provided cooking skills and fresh fruits and vegetables, a CSA and farmer's market to underserved communities in Charlotte. Another inspiring story. Right, right, right. Just fascinating. Great. How about the philanthropist category? Um, Maya uh, Penn? Maya Penn is 23 years old. She's given three TED Talks already, Karen, and written a book. It's one of the, she, when you meet Maya, you're kind of like, okay, what have I done with my life? She also is working with someone that I think you probably heard of, Viola Davis, as in the Viola Davis is her producer for an animated short film she's doing about pollinators. But when Maya was eight years old, she became really focused on the environment, especially wildlife and bees and pollinators. She was very artsy, um, very scientifically oriented too. And she created a sustainable fashion line at age eight. And this was before people, like people talk about sustainable fashion now, but it's pretty mainstream, but then it was not um, 15 years ago, not even 15, 14 years ago when she was, when she was um, creating this. And so that became her platform, but her, her whole thing is everyone has specific talents and um, she also created a nonprofit to provide sustainable sanitary pads and tampons to uh, girls in developing countries. And she's just done amazing things. Again, I wish we could list everyone because every, yeah. every, every <laughs> you have in your book in these categories, they've all done wonderful things. Um, maybe next time. Yeah, I'd love that. How about the SAGE category, Dr. Mark? Hyman? Yeah, Dr. Mark Hyman, many of you may be familiar with him. He is uh, at the Cleveland Clinic. He is a functional medicine doctor. He's published like eight New York Times bestsellers. He happens to be a Buddhist. And he said that for him, studying religion in undergraduate school is what made him want to become a doctor, to recognize suffering, to help ease suffering, and to connect uh, with other people. And one of the things he tries to do is um, he brings um, interfaith groups together to talk about health. He's worked with the uh, mega church, Rick Warren and Dr. Amen, who is Muslim. He wrote a book called The Daniel Plan with the three of them to talk about an interfaith guide for health and wellness and also talking about the planet. So his whole thing is by talking about values and by talking about health, we immediately can make that connection to planetary health. Great. Um, but about this spark. Dr. Shane Doyle? 
Dr. Shane Doyle is based in Bozeman. He is with the uh, Crow, excuse me, the Crow tribe, and he is um, an educational expert. And he talks about how he never, for him, environmentalist was a way of life. It was called the ceremonial way of life is what he talks about it, knowing that you're part of the earth. You're not, um, you know, uh, over the earth or in control of the earth. We're just part of it is how he kind of viewed himself, but he became more and more involved in environmental organizations when they wanted to start, especially here, learning more about the tribal history to Yellowstone National Park, to different events. And it turns out that two of his daughters are actually plaintiffs in the Held v. Montana Youth Climate Trial that just happened in June 2023 and is the first state trial on youth suing the state for not taking strong action on climate. And so he's the spark who's always there for everyone. <laughs> And the walk, uh, Gigi Li Chang. Gigi Li Chang has another really incredible story. Um, she is a wonk for sure. And hers is about food, interestingly enough, too. She uh, realized um, she just made baby food for her kids and did, realized that that was not actually common for working moms. And when she realized when all of the other moms were asking what she was feeding her kids, she realized that there was a real need for more organic um, and healthy food for kids. So she created what's called Plum Organics and was the founder of of that company and from there has become an investor in kind of our food systems and trying to get healthier food to kids across the United States. And she's been able to use her technical skills of knowing how markets work and knowing how to finance things and understanding food chemistry to create this opportunity and great brands for people. That's great. There are wonderful stories about what people what people have done. Um, you also talk about what Congress has done in your book. Uh, I'll be more specific. So you say for uh, more than 30 years, Congress has debated global warming. From 1992, when it ratified the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, uh, and they've done that in every legislative session since. Can you comment on the major steps Congress has taken? Uh, maybe, for example, the cap and trade policy. Yes. So so Congress has been debating this for a long time, and this is where a lot of the frustration comes, right? Uh, so we've known about the issue for a long time. And a reminder in 1992 at the Rio Convention, that was the Bush administration that supported this. So climate was not seen as a partisan issue until really the last probably six or seven years. It was definitely a bipartisan concern because obviously there's so much money at stake uh, for American commerce uh, and for business and, and trade and, and security and all these issues that intersect climate. So there have been many different proposals, everything from a carbon tax, which is a straight up tax based on how much carbon you pollute, excuse me, that you... Um, yeah, that you pollute. Um, there's also a cap and trade, which says that we're going to have cap emissions at this level. And if you produce more than that, it's like an allotment, then you need to sell that. That did pass in 2009, the House, but didn't pass the Senate. But what we've had recently, there have been all kinds of different other um, frameworks that have gone through Congress over the last 30 years. And when I say gone through, I mean, they've been proposed. Some have passed one chamber. They've had hearings, but they haven't become law. But the most significant law that we've seen uh, is the Inflation Reduction Act that passed this current Congress. And it is a 400 to $600 billion investment in climate solutions. Everything from extending clean energy manufacturing tax credits to switching to induction stoves, to consumer credits for energy efficiency, for consumer credits and business credits for transferring fleets to electric vehicles, to um, making huge investments in the grid. I think what's been challenging is as, and a huge investment in environmental justice and frontline communities. But I think Karen, one of the big challenges is as this money comes online, uh, in my personal view, the administration could do a better job of showing the investment. People aren't necessarily seeing the investment now, even though it is absolutely historic. So when I talk to young people, one of the things I say is, I just wanna make sure you know, that you know, $600 billion is the biggest, this is the most historic, biggest investment we've ever had in climate solutions. So don't say nothing is happening. It is happening, but it's not quite visible yet to people. Yeah, that would make a big difference. 
Yeah. Yeah. There needs to be more PR and marketing, <laughs> but I, in the book, I do go through all the different proposals that are out there. Yeah. Oh, you do. You did a very good job with that. Thank you. Uh, the climate news is tough. And every time I re read this question I've written here, I, I, I read the word rough, but rough and tough, rough and tough, uh, the news. And I know a little bit now about what gives you hope. You you have anything to add to what you've said in terms of hope? Yeah, I, I think I think it's important for young people to know that what gives me hope is not them because they do give me hope, but that's kind of the standard answer that they always hear. And it's a little bit of an eye roll. Some of them give now like, oh my gosh, we're so sick of being your hope. We're not your hope. I think intergenerational conversation and partnership is my real hope. I think that if we can have these meaningful conversations around our dinner tables, in our families about how we're all going to take action every day, a daily practice of sustainability, how we're going to work to these big global solutions, how we're going to keep talking about the possibilities is what gives me hope. Because ultimately, and I do talk about this in my, in my TED talk at TEDx Boston, but ultimately climate action is about love. It is about love. It is about intergenerational love and commitment. It's about a belief that we can have a better future for our kids. We're not headed in that direction now, Karen, but we can change it, but only if all of us act. Yes, I have some young people in my practice who are not, they're not experiencing sadness about the environment. They're actually mad. That's what they that's what they are saying that you you're leaving us uh i mean maybe me in the transference but adults <laughs> the real adults are are leaving us with a mess um yes how do you respond to that i mean it's true like i have to acknowledge that it's true it's okay to be angry um, but it's not all adults. And I think one of the things we forget to do in our conversations with young people is to let them know about the doers, the people that are out there that are fighting, which is why I wanted to not only have these different archetypes, but to, to highlight and spotlight the eco heroes that you just asked me to talk about. I have 21 profiled in the book so people can see there are a lot of folks out there that have been doing this work in their communities in very meaningful, important ways, shifting the culture, fighting for big policy change in that they're not alone. But I think there's an acknowledgement, but also I think that's where we have to shift the conversation to what's possible. So I, I remember this coming up in the conference that I've mentioned. So if we do all these things, is this enough? I, I think your answer is yes. Um, could you add to that? That is a great question. Is it enough? And I think it's not an either or. I think what's happened, unfortunately, in the environmental community is that because we've been so focused, I know in my personal life, I was so focused on policy change, which of course we have to have global policy change, global investments. We do have to have India and China take action. If India and China aren't playing, it isn't enough. But the only way they're going to do things is if we do things. If we don't do anything and fold our arms, you know, India and China aren't going to take action. We we must. And we must understand the impact that we have on the global south and that our energy choices and our way of life has had on the global south. So uh, what I what I say is um, it's not either or. It's not individual action versus collective action. It's both. And um, it's it's we have to do all that we can do. And I don't know what's enough. I do know that we have to have global change, and I know that starts with all of us. Yes, yeah, so speaking of um, what needs to be done and reaching other other countries, I was on a panel with somebody talking about, I believe, mourning environmental losses. And there were a couple of uh, people from China on the panel, and they were very tuned into what I was saying, but they said it made them sad because they were not getting these messages um, mm. it, from, the, from the government. I, I mean, I guess they, they, they said that people are just not aware of these things. They don't know that every day there's another species that is no longer with us. I don't know if it's every 
day, but it's very it high is rate. every day. It is every day. It is every day. Yeah, it is every day. And they may not be getting those um, global environmental communications, but when it comes to air quality and wildfires and water quality, you know, it's hard to ignore. It's hard to ignore those losses too. Like you may not know if there's a toxic chemical in your water per se, but I've heard in like the fashion district in China, people know what the latest color is going to be for the next season because, you know, the rivers turn that color um, nearby the factories that are dyeing those fabrics. So I, I think that there is a big challenge with information, misinformation, with communication, but that's why I think we have to get hyper-local and, and do what we can as individuals. I'm but one, you know, but I'll do what I can. Um, you know, you, you, we have to get hyper-local and talk about that because that ultimately is where we can have examples and make that global impact. That is a challenge, definitely a challenge. One thing that's very important, and I probably should have mentioned this or asked you this early on, but uh, better late than never. Can, can you talk about um, climate justice and what it means and why it's so important? Climate justice is center to everything. Uh, one of the things that, that um, Gen Z, this is their number one issue, poll after poll, doesn't matter what political party they're affiliated with, is climate. And the reason is because climate is intersectional. Climate impacts economy, it impacts race, it impacts intergenerationally, it impacts everything you can possibly imagine, food security, healthcare, you name it. Um, climate justice is the acknowledgement of what we've said as part of this conversation is that the people who contribute the least amount of carbon pollution are hurting the most. That's people in frontline communities, whether it's near oil and gas or plastic production facilities. They're mostly Black, Indigenous, people of color. We know about issues like redlining. A lot of times that that redlining and mortgages um, and where houses are located comes in communities that have toxic pollution. And those are the communities that are more exposed to toxic pollution. We know that trees, for example, even in urban planning, fewer trees are placed in black neighborhoods and Latino neighborhoods. So white neighborhoods normally have more natural cooling access. So climate justice is this idea of as we vision envision the new future, and as we're making these investments like $600 billion that just passed Congress, that we make sure we're investing in communities that have been hit hard, that we're considering the disproportionate impacts of climate um, on people of color. And I think one of the things that's very important, because you've probably heard this, Dr. Messina, I think people need to understand that climate anxiety is not a white phenomenon. That in poll after poll, Black, Indigenous, and people of color care more and worry more about the climate crisis because they are most impacted and they know they are. Um, so I think that that climate justice is this, this movement that we have to acknowledge the systemic discrimination and how climate change is impacting people and that in our solutions, we have to invest in communities that are hurting the most. Uh, that's that's absolutely important. On that note, I don't remember all the details of this story, but the gist was somebody told me that they they went by a, a certain area. I I believe it was of the Anacostia River in Washington D.C., and they saw a sign about polluted fish or fish that were contaminated. But this is a place where people of color often fish. And it said to me, it, it didn't say to me, I, I interpreted it in a certain way, but it said only uh, fish for tank or something, so many of these fish a month. And I thought to myself, okay, you're saying the fish are contaminated here, but you're also saying you can have so many a month. That doesn't seem like that's climate justice to me. Something that seems odd about that. Really? Yeah, I think it, it's a real challenge because, of course, the fish take is about the number of fish populations. It's not about the toxic chemicals that have polluted the fish and how they're polluting people. And so this idea of communication, of letting people know what the harm is, making sure people have access to traditional rights that they've had, but understanding you know, the, the harm, it's all very complicated, but there has to be more investment in the communication and access um, and, and understanding the impacts. Yeah. Um, thank you for, for clarifying that. What else is important for your book? 
I think the most important thing is that this is a message of hope that everyone has a role in climate action, come as you are, whatever your party affiliation is, whatever car you drive, um, you know, whether you have kids or don't have kids or grandkids, um, you know, whatever your religion is, whatever your color, your orientation, however you identify, you are welcome in this movement, you're needed in this movement. This is the biggest crisis of our lifetimes, and that we all need to show up in the way that we can. And, and I say this in my, my TED talk and in the book too, one of the things I want us to start embracing is thinking of ourselves as ancestors, and thinking of ourselves and thinking about our personal legacies and trying to work every day to create a future where the next generation can say thank you. Because we have the tools, we have the technology, what's missing is the political political will. And that political will comes when all of us stand up, find our voice and say, this is what we want for the future. Well, this has been a very insightful, a truly wonderful uh, interview. And I'm so glad that you agreed to join me. Um, so let's see, where can people find out more information about you? You mentioned your nonprofit organization. Is that the best, best place? Yes. Thank you so much, Dr. Messina. This has just been a wonderful conversation. I'm so proud and pleased and grateful that you're hosting this podcast, that you're having these conversations. I think it's so important to bring these issues to light. You can find out more about me at onegreenthing.org, at onegreenthing on Instagram. To my kids' utter embarrassment, I'm on TikTok at at onegreenthing. And then also my author website is heatherwhite.com and I'm at heatherwhiteofficial on Instagram. And yes, cringe on TikTok too. (laughs) Bless us all. Bless all of these middle-aged people on TikTok. We're trying our best to get the message out. That's great. Uh, I'll I'll try to, let me know when you do one of those little dances. (laughs) (laughs) I will, I will. (laughs) Okay, well, thank you again. And um, I hope that you will come back and join me. uh, I would love to. I would love to. Okay. Thanks so much. Bye-bye for now. Thank you.